Well, brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be with you this morning. I send my greetings from, or I bring my greetings from University Baptist Church in Fayetteville. We are regularly praying for you all, and we are grateful for you all and for your love for the Word of God. And that's one of the things I'm excited about this morning is getting to come before you and getting to preach God's Word because you love God's Word. And that's a fun thing to do is to preach to those who love God's Word, who want it to revive their souls, to refresh them, and to renew them this morning. And so I'm excited to get to sit under God's word with you and watch as God works in our own lives by his spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus. I'm also extremely grateful for Blake. One of the things that I love about Blake is how saturated in God's word that he is. And so I remember a couple weeks ago, Whenever he came up to Fayetteville, we got lunch together to chat about just church planning in general. Obviously, he was just launching into it, uh, but I was trying to glean anything I could get from him about church planning. And one thing that just stuck out to me was how rooted in Scripture that he was, just oozing out of him every turn, every advice, going to the Scriptures, showing from the Scriptures itself where it's talking about these things. And my heart just rejoices in that knowing that I don't have to somehow go get some kind of other education in order to try to plant a church, but God's actually given it right here in his word. It's very clear. And so I'm extremely grateful for you, Blake, just in encouraging me, pressing me on, you know, in the faith um, as we seek to consider potentially church planting uh, in the near future. And so, brothers and sisters, I am grateful to be here with you all this morning to sit under God's word. And so why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer real quick, and then we will dive in. Father, we give praise to you, though at times we may feel alone, abandoned, and forsaken. Yet, Lord, we know the truth. Lord, that the truth is that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, we know that because you have given us the down payment of our eternity, your Holy Spirit. Lord, you have told us in in Jesus that he will be with us to the end of the age. And so Lord, as we consider the word, would you please take this time and conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, we pray for the Spirit's work to convict our hearts, to convert any hearts in here who are not converted. And Lord, to comfort our souls as we live in this fallen world that often falls on us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In December 2019, health professionals in Wuhan, China, identified a new severe acute respiratory virus in an individual who had fallen ill. As thousands of people began to contract the virus, Thousands had turned into hundreds of thousands spread across multiple countries. And by February 11th, earlier this year, the World Health Organization named this virus COVID-19 and declared this worldwide health crisis a pandemic. As you all know, whole countries were effectively shut down for a time. And now we're hearing that cases are once again just on the rise. As of this week... There are more than 52 million cases worldwide of those who have contracted this virus. An estimated 1.3 million 
have died. And naturally, that has many of us asking in this season, how long? How long is this going to go on? How long is it going to be until we get a vaccine? How long until we can get back to normal, whatever that may look like from here? How long are you going to have to wear those masks? Jack and Julie have three kids. They've raised their children in a Christian home, regularly teaching them God's word and seeking to apply it to their hearts. They regularly proclaim the gospel to them and discipline them according to God's word. When the doors of the church are open, they're present. Sure, they've made their mistakes in parenting, but overall, they've served as examples to others of godly parenting. Yet by the time that their oldest child got to high school, they noticed that he was running with the wrong crowd. Eventually, he got into drugs and alcohol and had renounced the faith that he professed altogether. These hard months for Jack and Julie, turned into years, leaving them crying out to God, how long? How long is our child going to run? How long will our prayers seemingly just go unanswered? Maybe for you or for someone close to you, it's an addiction to alcohol. Maybe it's your work or pornography or craving that next drink or that next look or that next project, leaving you feeling like you can't live without it, while at the same time longing to get out of it, yet feeling hopeless, as if freedom is a mirage. Wondering to yourself, how long? Will I struggle with this addiction forever? Will I ever experience freedom How long will we go without a child? How long will I weep myself to sleep at the loss of my child? Or my father, or my mother, or my sibling? How long will those I believe to be friends continue to speak against me like enemies? How long will I look back on my life and wonder, did I even accomplish anything with it? How long will my memory continue to slip and my capacity to work continue to drag? My body continue to ache? How long? As many throughout church history have noted, if you live long enough, you're going to suffer. Certainly the biblical authors understood this, wondering how long the wicked would prosper and go unpunished. Wondering where in the world is God In all of this. And it's the same question that King David raises in our sermon passage this morning. How long? Yet David doesn't remain there. He actually lays out for us a process for moving from turmoil to trust, from pain to praise. He understands that in order to find comfort in pain, we must learn how to use and practice the truths that we believe. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. The Psalms are the divinely inspired songbook for the public worship of God in Israel. They were one of the ways that God's people learned devotion to him. As it's been said, the Psalms help us see God. God not as we wish or hope him to be but as he actually reveals himself to be. 
these psalms weren't just only sung among God's people, but they were actually turned into prayers by early Christians. The psalms give us a wide range of emotional, social, and spiritual responses to the circumstances of life, and they help us see our circumstances against the backdrop of God's character. Our psalm this morning is a psalm of lament. Now, you may be unfamiliar with that term, lament. Biblically speaking, a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust and praise, as one pastor put it. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust and praise. And so to lament is to wrestle with the reality of God's sovereignty in a world with tragedy. It's to wrestle with God's sovereignty in a world with tragedy. And in Psalm 13, David is lamenting the presence of his enemies in the face of God's seeming absence. And we're not given a lot of background for this psalm. But what we do see is that David is crying out to God to deliver him from the enemies that are before him, lest he be undone. In this psalm, like much of life, things aren't the way that they should be. Things often are not the way that we hope them to be. But what's most important is how and where, and ultimately, to whom we turn to. So let's read Psalm 13 together. Psalm 13, starting there in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long? Must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I think the main idea of this psalm, if you're going to take away just kind of a a, a sentence for the point of this psalm, it's very simple. I think it would be this. That our confidence in conflict, our confidence in conflict rests on the character of God. Our confidence in conflict ultimately rests upon the character of God. This psalm is really built around three stanzas that move us from the raging storm of David's situation to resting and rejoicing in God's salvation. Right? It's a process. He's moving us along. Now, in life, that process may look differently. We may go back and forth between the various things, between the various movements and the various stages of this psalm. But what we're going to consider this morning are these three stages of David's response to suffering in our three points. And so point number one, we're going to see this in verses one through two. 
our pain in suffering. Our pain in suffering. Verses 1 through 2. Point 2 is our prayer in suffering. We'll see that in verses 3 through 4. Our prayer in suffering. In point 3, our praise in suffering. Verses 5 through 6, our praise in suffering. So point number one, our pain in suffering. Our passage begins with a fourfold cry of how long. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have such a quick repetition of that phrase, which shows us the sense of urgency on David's part for God to act. Notice what David is lamenting. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David feels abandoned by God. For someone to hide their face from you speaks to actually them withholding their presence from you. They won't turn to you. They won't face you. David is longing for a sense of God's presence in nearness like two friends who can speak to one another face to face. We see this longing back in Psalm 11, verse 7, where David says that the upright shall behold his face. That is the high watermark of Christianity, is beholding the face of God, being in his very presence, that intimacy that we can have with God. And so David wants a sense of his presence, yet he feels like God has forsaken him. Notice that this isn't a recent development, right? This is not recent. David wonders if God is going to forget him for how long? Forever. Forever. The sorrow in his heart in verse 2 doesn't just kind of come and go, but it's actually been there all day long, as he says. David's wondering if this situation will ever change. Because of this, He feels as if he's left to himself to deal with the raw emotions of anxiety and the agony that come from feeling forgotten by God. And because he feels isolated and alone, he becomes his own counselor. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine that. Feeling like the one that you love the most has forgotten you, and then having to be the one who actually gives yourself your counsel. (laughs) That's rough. That is rough. David is communicating the internal struggle that comes with suffering. As if it couldn't get worse, David's struggle isn't just internal, but his internal struggle is actually a response to external suffering. In verse 2, David is battling not only an enemy within himself, but also an enemy outside of himself. Enemies that seem to be winning victory after victory after victory in their war against David. And now we're not told exactly who these enemies are. I think the psalm is intentionally broad and vague, which can apply to a lot of different circumstances of life. I think it's opposite of that of Psalm 12, which is very similar to, in that Psalm 12 is very specific, speaking about slander and those speaking falsely against us. And yet, though David feels abandoned by God and defeated by his enemies, he does not remain there. He brings his complaint to the Lord. That reveals a couple of things for us. 
it reveals that David doesn't deny suffering, but he recognizes that it exists. And he recognizes that suffering has an expiration date. Even implied in the question of how long is the anticipation of a day when suffering is going to be no more. Yet until that day comes, David understands acutely that this world is not as it ought to be. Ever since Genesis 3, we've been crying out, how long? Throughout the scriptures, we see that question raised over and over. The psalmist raise it. Jeremiah, Job, Habakkuk, Elijah, all cry out, how long? But why? Why? Because suffering is the result of sin. And our sin has introduced the chaos of the curse into creation. David's feeling of abandonment and the sorrow that results from it, the agony of counseling his own soul, the very fact that he has enemies and that they would even oppose God's anointed king. All of these just serve as an example that stuff is messed up and it messes with us. David is seemingly hemmed in by internal suffering and external suffering. But there is another thing that David's complaint reveals. It reveals that human pain and suffering actually don't disprove God's power and sovereignty. Yet they reveal it. Why else would David bring his complaint to God if he didn't believe that God had the power to deliver him? He cries out to God because he knows that ultimately suffering isn't king. The Lord is. There is one who stands above it and who, by whose power can actually deliver from it. David is not ultimately looking for a quick fix. Instead, he's showing us how to grieve biblically. He's showing us what to do when what we believe about God and how we feel about God are actually at odds with one another. Maybe you felt like David before. Maybe you've felt like Psalm 13. This psalm resonates with you in your pain. Maybe you feel like David right now in your life, wondering how much longer you can take this pain in suffering, wondering where God is in your suffering, asking yourself, how long will I carry this grief? How long will this depression remain a dark cloud that just seems to never lift? How long will people continue to speak falsely about me in order to build themselves up? How long will people look at me like I'm out of touch with reality because I hold to those harder edges of God's truth? And the pain of isolation and loneliness in our suffering over time can actually make that grief and that sorrow even worse. You feel stuck in this rut of just grief. And that grief, if we're not careful, can turn into despair and hopelessness. When days turn into months and months turn into years, you begin to feel that God isn't necessarily against you, but he's not really for you either. Our feelings can often contradict what we objectively know to be true. 
we might say objectively that God is near us. But in suffering, it often doesn't feel that way. After all, suffering can affect everything. And brothers and sisters, I think it's important for us to recognize the reality of our suffering rather than denying it. Living in denial won't change anything. In fact, it actually only prolongs the pain that you're in. Neither do we want to move toward anger at God in our suffering because we get what we don't want and we want what we don't get, as it's been said. And yet anger only moves us further away from God. Instead, we draw near to God by lamenting the, thi- the way the things are because they weren't the way God created them to be. This is not how he created his creation. As Pastor Mark Vrogop in his, uh, puts it in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and I would recommend that book wholeheartedly to you this morning if you can get it. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. He says this, To cry is human. To lament is Christian. To cry is human. To lament is Christian. And in lament, we're drawing near to God by bringing our complaint to him. Now you may be wondering, well didn't the Israelites get 40 years in the wilderness for complaining to God? Yes, they did. (laughs) However, this is a difference between godly complaint and ungodly complaint. As it's been said before, biblical lament complains to God about the fallen world. Biblical lament complains to God about the fallen world. Whereas unbiblical lament complains about God and accuses him of lacking goodness and holiness and wisdom. And so when you find yourself asking the same question as David, you don't have to fret. You're not strange. In, in, in reality, you're just joining right, the same question that Christians have been raising for centuries, throughout the ages, lamenting the effects of the fall on their life. In fact, a third of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, are actually laments. Did you know that? A third of the Psalter are laments. Every time I get asked to preach a psalm up at UBC, I'm like, man, I'm back to lamenting again. Because there's so many of them. And as we see with David in verses 1 and 2, we approach God in our suffering by bringing our complaints to God. David is being honest with God about his external suffering from any enemies and his internal suffering in feeling abandoned. We lament by being honest with the Lord about our pain. That's how we lament. And being honest with the Lord about our pain is a hard thing to do. Why? Why is that so hard? Because when we come before the Lord, honestly, we have to open those wounds back up again. This is often why we run to other things so we don't have to address the pain in our life. And yet bringing those laments to God, we are opening up those wounds afresh to him. And that hurts. I mean, look at David. He doesn't look like he's having a great time right here. But the stakes for him could not be higher. His life is at stake. Bringing our hurt to the Lord will hurt, yet it's necessary to heal. It's going to hurt, 
yet it's necessary to heal. And God in his kindness has given us this biblical category of lament to be like a surgeon whose scalpel makes cuts, not to hurt his patient, but to actually bring healing to that patient. And lament can do that for us. Being honest with the Lord takes humility because we're recognizing that God can heal or save or fix or cure us. In suffering, God may feel far off, yet complaint is the beginning stage of drawing near to God and feeling his presence again. That's what that is. And so, brothers and sisters, be honest with the Lord about your complaints. It might mean that you just write down all the pain and the suffering that you're going through in your life so you can just see it out there on a piece of paper so that you can then take that and be honest and go to the Lord with it. What is it that you're wrestling with this morning? What is that? What are you suffering through? Write it down. Writing it down helps to give clarity to your circumstances. And then bring that lament to the Lord as the biblical authors guide you with language to express your pain like David does right here in Psalm 13. Doing so actually reflects that this world isn't the way it should be, yet our sovereign Lord has the power to deliver from it. It's not unfaithful to grieve and to bring a complaint to the Lord. It's actually unfaithful to not go to the Lord at all. However, David isn't just posting up in the valley with his questions. We don't complain just to complain, or else we're never going to receive comfort in our affliction. There is a purpose to lament, and it is to move us in time to praise. But before we get there, we need to make our request known to God, which is what, exactly what David does in verses 3 through 4. Point number two, our prayer and suffering. So David is just raised his complaint to God, and in verses three through four, he turns to asking God for something. And notice the three things right here that David asked God for. Number one, he asked the Lord to consider him, look at him. He asked the Lord to answer him. Number two. Number three, he asked the Lord to light up his eyes lest he sleep the sleep of death, which is just another way of saying, restore my strength, restore my life, since bright eyes were often a sign of health, a sign of, of life. And did you notice that each of these things right here, in verses 3, really in verse 3, each of these things that David asked for are actually a counter to the questions that he raises in verses 1 through 2. What he feels in 1 through 2, he now takes to the Lord in 3 and 4. The things that he complains about, he now prays for. In verse 1, David feels as if the Lord is hiding his face from him, as if, as if the Lord has forgotten him. So what does he ask God to do in verse 3? He says, hey, look over here. See, literally, that's what the text is. See, look over here. Consider me. David asked God to look at him, to turn his face toward him, and to consider him. Again, David complains about having to take counsel in his soul and just the sorrow that comes from doing that. However, what does he ask God again in verse 3? Answer me. 
Rather than having to look inwardly, inwardly, he is looking outwardly to God to answer him. And finally, in verse 1, David complains of his enemies triumphing over him. Yet now in verse 3, he calls on God to save and to restore him so his enemies will not have the last word. David prays for the things that he laments. He prays for those things. But why does he pray the way he does? Not only because his life is at stake, but also God's reputation is at stake. David is God's anointed king. He represented God to the people and the people to God. And because of that, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord made a covenant with David to give him an everlasting kingdom for a son to sit on his throne for eternity. And so for David's enemies to prevail over him would actually call into question God's own character. And so the stakes are high. The difficulties of this life have not driven David to despair. Instead, it's driven him to depend upon the Lord. And so he turns to the only one, the only one, who can save him from his situation. But notice that as he does right here, he's not trying to manipulate God into giving him what he wants. As if prayer is a ladder to where we can earn God's favor by our long prayers or the fervency of our prayers. Neither is he trying to bargain with God, saying, if you just save me, then I'll pay you back as if it were some kind of debtor's ethic. Instead, David is really just asking God to answer his complaint in a way that aligns with his character. That's what he's doing. David may feel forsaken by God, but David knows Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. He knows that God will never leave him nor forsake him. He will not leave nor forsake his people. David knows Psalm 34, verses 17 through 18. That when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all, out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He believes this about God's character and his prayer actually shows that. Suffering will bring pain, but God's character should drive us to pray. It should drive us to pray. After all, we wouldn't call on the Lord to consider us. We wouldn't, David wouldn't call on the Lord to consider him, nor to deliver him, if he really didn't think that God cared for him, or would answer him, or would deliver him from his situation. What he prays, and notice the connection, what he prays is what he believes, which is exactly what prayer is. It's how our faith expresses itself. It's how our faith goes public to God. As it's been said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. It reveals how dependent we are on the Lord and how deeply we long for intimate fellowship with him. For David, this is deeply personal. It's why he calls the Lord. Did you notice right there in verse 3? My God. This is the Lord, my God. Ultimately, He is completely and utterly dependent upon his God to do what he cannot. Brothers and sisters, when you feel the enemies of this fallen world surrounding you, where do you turn? Who or what 
do you cry out to to numb the pain that you feel? When suffering sets in, where might you seek to self-medicate in order to tune out your pain? Is it pornography? Is it alcohol? Another relationship? Or maybe just binge-watching your favorite show in order to distract you from that pain? Do you throw yourself in your work to silence it? Do you look to your spouse or your kids maybe to replace what you've lost? Each of these things will only prolong and deepen your suffering. And yet bringing your pain to God in prayer can lead you in time. It can lead you to peace in your soul. Because one of the unique things about prayer is that it reminds us of what is true about God. And ultimately how we bring truth to bear in our circumstances is by bringing that truth to God in prayer. And so friends, have you considered not just being God, not just being honest about, with God about your grief and suffering, but specifically crying out to him and pleading with him to just step in and to act? Rather than looking to other things to medicate your pain, do you trust him enough to cry out to him and help, believing that he is the medicine that can ultimately heal you. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that for those in Christ, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin which means that he understood the full weight of temptation because he went all the way and yet never sinned. In the Old Testament time of David, the high priest would go into God's presence in the Holy of Holies on behalf of God's people. And yet now, on this side of the cross, we have God's Son who sympathizes with us and brings us before the presence of the Father. Let us then, as the author of Hebrews says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, we can come boldly with confidence before the Lord because we have unhindered access to his throne. We don't have to come in the strength of our own prayer because we come in the strength of his. In two ways... I think that's helpful for us. Two ways that you can do this together can happen throughout the week and right here on Sunday morning. Throughout the week, you can prioritize time with other members to pray together. So consider using meal times to pray with others. Use Zoom to pray with one another when you're not able to meet together. Find one person in your member directory that you can call and that you can just ask them how they're doing and then for them to give you a couple ways that, that you can be praying for them. And then just pray for them right then and there. So are you struggling in prayer? The answer should be yes. We all struggle in prayer. Well, one way to combat a lack of desire to pray is actually to pray with others. Gather together throughout the week. Pray for one another throughout the week. Call each other and pray for one another. Prayer begets prayer. The more you do it, the more your dependence and your desire for the Lord is going to grow. 
The second thing to consider is incorporating prayers of lament in your Sunday morning service. I don't know, maybe you already do that. Uh, But incorporating prayers of lament, even within the service, right here in this service. Particularly in America, our worship services can lead toward being overly triumphalistic and celebratory. Now, that's certainly not wrong. Obviously, we are Christians. We have been redeemed. We have been set free from the power of sin. And that is something to celebrate. But the Christian life is more than just a shout of joy to God for the salvation that he has secured in his son. It also includes a longing for the new heavens and the new earth when the curse will one day be reversed. Corporate prayer of lament can help us in those visiting our services to see a realistic picture of the range of emotions that we will have throughout the Christian life. Just as it takes faith to go to the Lord in prayer while in pain, so also it takes faith to trust in God's character when circumstances might lead us to believe otherwise. Which leads us to point number three, our praise and suffering. Our final point, verses five and six, our praise and suffering. Now we really come to the major turning point in this psalm. And it happens with the first word in verse five. But, that's an important word, (laughs) but, though suffering may tell David to believe something else, he doesn't retreat. Instead, he trusts in the Lord. And notice, notice how he describes his trust in verse 5. He says, I have trusted. Not I will trust, but I have trusted. David isn't waiting on a sign from God because God's already shown himself faithful to David. Trust is a continual state of being. It's a heart posture toward God. And look at what he's trusting in. He says, in your steadfast love, unfailing love, your never-ending love. God's steadfast love really speaks to his covenantal love toward his people. His love that creates and sustains a covenant relationship, though we fail to keep it. A love that's faithful to keep his promises and goes beyond what's actually required of him. It's not a love that just kind of gets by trying to maintain a relationship. Rather, it's an over-the-top kind of love. A love that's proven itself faithful time and time in time, again, on into eternity. Not only does faith trust in God's steadfast love, but it's also confident in the Lord's salvation. Did you notice that right there, right after that first line? It's confident in the Lord's salvation. David says his heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David's faith expresses through his confidence Right in God's salvation. That's his faith being expressed that God is going to act. And this promise of salvation hasn't come yet for David. He hasn't been delivered yet. It's not like Psalm 12, where in that psalm, God actually speaks, yes, I will deliver. We're not given an answer in Psalm 13. He's not been delivered yet. And so he's still waiting on this salvation. Yet in his waiting, What's the next step? Or what does he do in his waiting right there? He rejoices. 
He rejoices. Trust leads to rejoicing because David is confident in God's character. He's confident in God's promises and in God's goodness, as we see in verse 6. David's showing us that our comfort rests on God's character and our pain actually pivots on God's promises. Finally, we see in verse 6 that David says, he will sing to the Lord. He will sing to the Lord. He trusts the Lord. He rejoices in the Lord's salvation. Now he sings to the Lord. Did you notice how active David's trust in the Lord is as he waits on God to act? David's active. David isn't just sitting around. He complains to the Lord. He prays to the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. He rejoices in the Lord. He sings in the Lord. All of this, a reflection of David's faith in God to be able to save him. And why does he do that? Why does he do that in verse 6? Because he has dealt bountifully with me, as he says in verse 6. David is saying that God has been good to him, though his circumstances might say otherwise. David can see God's goodness even in the dark clouds of suffering because God has a track record of faithfulness and goodness toward David infinitely longer than all of the difficulties combined in David's life. God has been inexhaustibly good to David and has come near to him in his goodness. And David is showing us that to enjoy that goodness is actually to sing It's actually to give praise to God. David is showing us that our experience of God's goodness and grace in the past actually gives us confidence in a glorious future. Friends, this kind of response to suffering is completely and utterly contrary to the way that the world deals with suffering. It is. Praise doesn't feel natural when you're in pain. You don't normally just want to cry out in praise to God. More often than not, we'd rather just point the finger at God than praise him when we experience loss. We'd rather recount the ways that he's given us what we don't want than actually rejoicing in getting what we don't deserve. David has men ready to take his life, and yet he sings like he's the most secure and blessed human being on the planet. But friends, would you say that this describes your response to suffering? Does this describe your response to suffering? Does your faith respond to pain by trusting in God's steadfast love toward you, rejoicing in his salvation, singing because of his goodness toward you. Well, if not, you can take comfort. Take comfort. It might honestly take a while. But taking that next step of resting and rejoicing in the Lord happens by recounting his faithfulness to you in Christ. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus has just descended from the mountain of transfiguration to his disciples, arguing with the religious leaders of his day about not being able to heal a father's son with an evil spirit. 
And Jesus says to them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Later he asked the father of the boy with the evil spirit, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus embodies lament at the deepest level. Lamenting the faithlessness of God's people and the need for prayer in a world with demonic influence. He embodies lament when he feels the full darkness and weight of being forsaken by the Father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, like King David, Jesus, the true anointed King of God, rejoicing, why? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He rejoiced in the forgiveness of sins that he secured for us, for all who would repent of their sins and trust in him. His joy was that we might have him who embodied our lament so that one day he would put it to an end. On this side of the cross from David, we actually get to look back at the proof of God's steadfast love for us in Christ. The gospel is the ultimate basis that God won't forget about us, nor forsake us, nor let us be destroyed, but will deliver us. Brothers and sisters, our praise in pain is Christ. He is our praise in pain. And so the question for us isn't finally about how or where, or why, but who? Who? Who will we turn to? Now, if you don't identify as a follower of Christ this morning, recognize that your suffering now compares little to the eternal suffering that you will endure outside of Christ because of your sin. Turn from your sin and trust in the only one who could suffer, bleed, and die for sin, and rise from death in order to secure for us eternal life, who can actually wipe away the pain of eternal torment for you. Turn to him. Look to him. Draw near to him who can cleanse you from your sin. Well, this song of David wasn't just sung by him, but by all of God's people that David represented because they're recipients of God's grace as well. Our comfort not only comes from the character of God, but also the care of God's own people. And the body of Christ is one of those graces that God has given to us in our suffering. And so just showing up on Sunday morning, maybe Blake's talking about the ministry of presence, right? Just being present, showing up, on Sunday mornings is one of the best anecdotes to suffering for God's people. Because when we do, we place ourselves in the context where we can have God's word reinforced to us. When we show up this morning, we hear God's word sung to us. We hear God's word prayed. We hear God's word preached. And often we'll see God's word on display through baptism in the Lord's Supper. These are ways that we remind one another as we meet together to encourage one another with God's word because we are going through all kinds 
of various levels and degrees of suffering in our life. And when we are present, we put ourselves in the context to be able to encourage one another with the word that drives down deep in our hearts the truth of God's word. Be present because you can come and you can get that word for your own weary soul this morning. Brothers and sisters, prioritize this time with one another and seek to intentionally encourage each other as you gather together. Move past surface level conversations to get into one another's lives and so that that pain can be exposed and the healing process can begin. Because the reality is, is that there is another hard reality in this text. God may not relieve your suffering immediately. You may deal with it your entire life. So what happens when your situation just remains the same? David doesn't get an answer from God. You might not either, which may actually multiply your pain. The souls of the martyrs underneath the altar in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, they cry out to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And what are they told? They're told to wait a little longer until the full number of the martyrs of the church come to fruition. David is showing us how to wait on the Lord because in this life, your scar may not go away, but neither will his. He understands. He cares. He's there, as one counselor put it. Your suffering is not wasted because Christ has won. Instead, let it give you clarity about God's character and be used by God to conform you to Christ. Because one day soon, the trumpet will sound, Christ will return, all evil will be destroyed, everything will be made new, and you will come to the high watermark of your life where you will see God's face from Revelation 22, verse 4. Until then, brothers and sisters, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Great God, we praise you that in pain, in the presence of suffering, you are not absent. Though we may feel that way, Lord, we praise you that you are not, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that you will be with us till the end of the age. And so, Lord, we pray that even in pain and suffering that you would use that to work in us what is ultimately pleasing in your sight. For it is greater to see your face in glory than to suffer the eternal torment that comes with rejecting your son. Lord, keep us faithful to wait on you as we trust in your character, in your steadfast love, as we rejoice in your salvation, and as we sing to you because you have dealt bountifully with us. Hold us fast till that day, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.